You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Fighting a war is a gruesome business, and surviving a wound sustained in the field can be made doubly challenging by the conditions soldier and surgeon find themselves working in. David Pondolfino joins us today to talk about military medicine and the science of saving soldiers from their injuries in the field. David, thank you for being here today. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to be here. Just by way of introduction, uh, you are staffing the military encampment, which is in place in the summer weeks, um, and you are interpreting military medicine, field medicine. Tell me about that interpretation that you do, what you're trying to lay out for folks. Generally, I, I, have a, I have my instruments laid out on the table, um, and I have I try to produce uh, to provide a uh, an assortment of instruments that a man in practice in this time would or might have had, um, and some of those include instruments that are kind of makeshift, simply because, as we may know anyway. Most of the really well-made things came from England anyway, and certainly surgical instruments did. So once the revolution starts, you can't get anything from England. So you've got to find things to substitute sometimes. Um, knives and saws and, and various other, the, the things that are made out of very fine steel are very hard to get. And you're interpreting the character, the person of well, a military surgeon. Yes, I'm doing a, a, a man who is an, a serving as a regimental surgeon. Uh, every, every regiment has to have its own surgeon. Uh, the surgeon then has the task of picking two surgeon's mates from among the enlisted men of the regiment uh, and then he teaches them sort of in an apprentice system manner, uh, their duties, which are basically going to be uh, doing routine visits and treatments and things that the surgeon really can delegate to somebody else uh, on, a, on, a, on, an egg, on a regular basis. Uh, and and has, he has to have an assistant with surgery. Surgeries, by the way, are done as rapidly as possible. Uh, because there is no anesthesia. You mentioned some of the routine procedures that a surgeon might see. What are some of the routine injuries uh, or things that well, they might see? Uh, every morning when the re when uh, at Reveille, the, the men have to st present themselves for roll call. Any men who are sick or, or, or injured or in any way incapacitated, they report sick on roll call. And they remain in the tent and then the surgeon or one of the mates has to go around and see each one of these men who've reported sick and they determine whether the man is actually fit for duty or not. Uh, and so that's one of the routine things that gets done every day. The role of a surgeon in the regiment is he is technically an officer, although he doesn't have a field command. Uh, most surgeons are paid as a major and he has absolute control over the medical department. So he's a member of the colonel's staff. He, and in, if you're a patient of his, he outranks you, no matter what your rank is. <laughs> and that's regulation. So uh, in other words, he can give the colonel orders. So doctor's orders are really doctor's orders. They are. Um, 
so it's a, it's a it's a heavy responsibility, and the surgeon's mates carry that as well. When they make a determination, the surgeon then you know backs them up, and uh, that's that's it. If you, if you, in other words, if you declare a man's unfit, he's unfit. So I'm understanding as you're talking that the job of a surgeon is 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 probably only half dealing with injuries, but the other half might be oh, fighting actually, disease in actually, the camp. Actually, 80% of, of what a surgeon is doing is treating diseases in the camp. Which could kill as many men or more as actual combat actually, injuries. Actually, two men died of, of diseases in the camp for every one on the field. So in the 18th century camp, then, what are the, what are the diseases that, are, that are men are suffering from? In the average Continental Army Regiment, where most of the men come from the countryside, you're going to see, and, and this, by the way, goes for the Civil War as well, you see things like measles, mumps. Measles and mumps carry with them extremely high fevers. Fevers are very hard to deal with when, you don't, when you're not able to give the person adequate fluids. So, and in an adult, measles particularly, is, you might as well have smallpox. It's uh, that deadly? Yes. Oh, they, they, you, they die in droves from measles. Mumps is very similar because of the high fever. Um, and mumps also carries other debilitating uh, things along with it in adults. Uh, all these diseases that, that we think of as childhood diseases, if you get this as an adult, it's dangerous. People forget that most of these diseases are forgotten now. We vaccinate against them, but of they're course. deadly epidemics right. and, that's and terrible reason, suffering. Well, that's the reason we vaccinate against them. You mentioned the other half of what you do, or the other 20% to be more accurate, is, involves some of those tools. Is wound treatment. Tell me about what are some of those tools that you lay out on the table, some of those wounds that you well, do treating. Well, uh, a good portion of the set that's on the table, um, there's a few dental tools, there are a few general tools, instruments. There are a few general instruments. The, the rest of the set is for amputations. And that's one of the most common procedures that the surgeon would find himself performing? In, after a battle, uh, with bullet wounds, yes. Uh, that, would, that would probably be something that would you, you do. Let me put it this way. You would do far more amputations in the Army than you would do in a civilian practice ever. And the reason for that is the nature of the wounds that you're getting. Mm. Um, the muskets fire a, a, a lead ball, it's 70 caliber, that's almost three quarters of an inch. It's heavy, it's made of lead, when it's, and, and it's intended to, to, uh, to debilitate. It's intended to do tremendous damage when it strikes, and it does. For one thing, ball tends to flatten when it strikes because it's heavy lead. And they travel at a fairly, what we think of nowadays as a fairly low speed. So that when it strikes you, it's, it's, it's like being struck. I mean, it's, it's like being punched. Um, the, uh, so that the wound of entry will be about the size of the ball. The wound of exit will be considerably larger if it continues through, just through tissue, not bone. If it only goes through tissue, then you're lucky because chances are we can dress that and, and that will heal. Uh, if it strikes a bone in your arm or your leg, 
uh, it'll shatter the bone. If you had an x-ray in the 18th century, which you would see, you would see a gap in the bone about an inch wide with little pieces of bone, little pieces of lead, and little bits of tissue in there. It really shows you what these men suffered. It really kind of makes real the suffering of war when you think yeah. about the injuries uh, and then the treatments. Think of an amputation in the field with yes. no anesthesia, anesthesia, no antibiotics to follow up afterwards. Oh, no. So no. The, the rate of, of healing must have, must have been all over the place. If you were young and strong and basically healthy, you had a, you had a pretty good chance to survive an amputation. It depended much more on where the amputation was done on your arm or leg. The farther down your arm or leg we have to amputate, the better chance that you have to survive it. Well, it's a terrible subject, but a fascinating subject. If people walk by the encampment, they'll see a real crowd around your tent and people clamoring to listen to this area of history. And it really gives us new appreciation for what daily life was like for them. One of the things I try to include when I'm interpreting in the camp, and that is that in, in all my experience in, in practice and my reading, um, one of the guiding principles that I've always used when I interpret is medical training is not easy at, at the best of times. Uh, when and practicing medicine or any other medical field practice is a, is a, is a very tough thing to do, particularly when you're trying very hard to do it right. I don't think I have ever known anyone in the practice who has not did not get into it with the idea that they're there to help people. And I believe that these people 200 years ago did the same thing. I don't, I don't think anyone, you couldn't devote seven years of your life to study if you, didn't, if you weren't doing this to help people. Uh, and I think we have to remember that when we look back at some of the things that they did and some of the mistakes that they made, largely due to ignorance, um, that and 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 be respectful. What a great topic you've shared with us today. Thank you so much for coming by and giving us an insight into this area of the past. And I hope folks come by and see the military encampment and visit you out there in the historic area and learn a little bit more. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you. We're always glad to hear from you. Send comments or suggestions from our webpage at podcast.history.org or find us on Facebook. To support the podcast and other Colonial Williamsburg programs, visit history.org slash donate.